to iGen Politics, formerly known as Intergenerational Politics, a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl and an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the wearer of hashtag Jill's Pins. And today I'm wearing a very special pin for our very special guest, Judy Woodruff. And it's a star because she's a star. So you no doubt know Judy from her decades-long career in broadcast journalism. She currently appears as a daily anchor on PBS NewsHour. Judy began her uh, career in local journalism in 1968 and quickly rose in the ranks to become White House correspondent for NBC in 1976 and then PBS in 1982. She then moved on to CNN to host her Inside Politics show and its Worldview news program before returning to PBS in 2006 to co-host its news hour with the late Gwen Ifill. Um, In a time when misinformation and disinformation are rampant, we are so delighted to have with us Judy to talk about her time in journalism, how local journalism and news have evolved in her lifetime, what she sees as the most concerning elements of the news industry now, and also her advice for young journalists. So thank you so much for being here, Judy. It's great to be with you, Victor. I'm so excited to be talking to you and Jill, uh, even though, as we say, the subject is not always uplifting. Well, I think today's subject will be uplifting. Um, And one of the subjects we want to cover is your wonderful career, because as I said, you are a journalist I have always admired. And so I want our audience to get to know about that. But I want to start today with some of your views about how, as an insider, you think the media has performed since you entered journalism and how it's performing now. So let's start with a historic political and legal event that you and I were both part of. That's Watergate. At the time, you were covering local news for CBS affiliate in Georgia. And I'd like your perspective on how you think the media covered that scandal. I've always said on this podcast that during Watergate, we all agreed on the same facts. There were three major networks, they all had the same reporting, and that if there had been a Fox News, the outcome might have been very different because that is what's standing in the way of bipartisan uh, responses to events of today, I think. Um, So I'd like your opinion on what you think might happen in the world today and how you think the news covered things back in your starting days in journalism. Well, Jill, uh, I have to say that Watergate was really, it was truly the first major uh, political story for me as a local reporter. I uh, did go to work for the CBS affiliate in Atlanta in January of 1970. I was Uh, My first assignment was to cover uh, the governor's campaign, the state legislature, the governor's campaign, and a former state senator, peanut farmer named Jimmy Carter, uh, was running for governor uh, that year. Um, So we had a lot on our hands with politics in Georgia during that time. He went on to be elected and served uh, for four years. But of course, the Watergate story developed a couple of years after that, and then of course, by the end of his term, it was the, the huge, the mega national political story. What I remember the best, Jill, is I'd be out uh, on the road. I'd be out covering a story, either city politics or, or state politics. I'd get back into the, into the bureau, into the office in mid-afternoon. And, of course, everybody there was riveted watching uh, the screen in the background, CBS's coverage uh, of the hearings. And it was must-watch. 
And everywhere I went, of course, you know, people didn't have televisions everywhere the way they do today. Cable uh, certainly didn't exist. And in offices, you didn't see television. But I always felt, you know, it was a moment when I thought, I need to remember everything I'm hearing because this is going to be important for the rest of my time, uh, however long I'm going to be a journalist. And of course, I had no idea how long that was going to be. But it was, you're right, Jill. I mean, there were there were three networks and we all competed fiercely with one another, CBS, NBC, and ABC. But everybody was reporting the same thing. You didn't have a different slant or a different take or a complete denial by one network that the other two were not part of. And so there was a sort of a, there was an acceptance of it. It didn't mean that there weren't people who supported uh, Richard Nixon. I mean, certainly in Georgia, he had he had his supporters. Among the people I talked to, whenever Watergate came up in our local coverage, I was always able to find people who were still a Nixon supporter. But the facts, the information that was coming out of the hearings was indisputable. And it, and you're right, it's very different today. It's, you know, of course, Nixon not only was popular, when he ran for re-election despite the Watergate episode, uh, and it was before there was a clear linkage to him, although anybody reading the coverage in the Washington Post pretty much knew that it was connected to the White House and the Committee to Re-Elect. Uh, he nonetheless won a landslide. He won 49 states and an overwhelming majority of the popular vote. But do you think that if there had been a Fox News, the outcome would have been the same? I think it's hard to say that because the, the I think, I mean, of course, it's impossible to know. We're speculating. But when you combine the people who had voted for Richard Nixon, and, and, and it's not just the, the media that's bifurcated, it's the willingness of people to, to uh, dispute what they're hearing, what they're told is facts, and what they're told is, can be borne out with facts and research. There's, it seems to me there's a, a greater willingness on the part of the American people today to just look at information uh, that is backed up with evidence and to say, I don't believe it. I, don't, I just don't trust it. I don't like where it's coming from. I think they have an agenda and I'm not going to accept it. And I think, and, and, to, and to say, I don't, I don't trust the media broadly. Um, of course, the media, the definition of what is media has changed so much in these uh, 40, 50 years since then. You know, I think the focus on facts and truth and critical thinking uh, are something we want to basically pursue further in, in this discussion. But um, do you think there is any way for a news organization, whether it's uh, social media or what we would consider the old line media, newspapers and television and cable, to focus on the truth? How do we get people who are in a silo of, I believe this, therefore I'm listening to that. How do we get them to hear the truth? That to me, Jill, is one of the central questions of our time for journalists, because uh, clearly there's so much information right now that we need to be reporting on and sharing with the American people, with whoever our audiences are, uh, every day, all day long, between the pandemic, our political uh, situation in this country, the economy, there's so many, not to mention international news, it's all important. 
and 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 the idea that now more and more Americans are saying when they're polled that they just don't trust the media, they don't like the news media, um, and they're they're lumping us all together. But you know that that does reflect on all of us, and even if we think, I mean, I think at the news hour, I know at the news hour. We work very hard not to make mistakes, to make sure what we're reporting is accurate. It's backed up by facts, by information. We double and triple check our our data, our reporting. We don't throw things on the air. (laughs) If there's a story breaking, even if it's on Associated Press, which is a very trusted news source, we still will say, well, let's check it. Let's make our own phone calls. even with all of that, there's still skepticism and distrust. And so you ask, what can we do? Um, I, I have to say, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. We talk about it a great deal. I think all we can do right now is continue to be sure we are reporting what we know to be true, because at some point there will be accountability. People will come back and say, you know, did you, you, know, did you have that right? Did you do your homework? And so we want to be able to to point to what we reported at a given time and say, yes, that was those were the facts that we had. But I want to I I do want to add this, that I think that we have been through a period in recent years where the news media has focused on some stories at the expense of others. I think, for example, in the lead up to the 2016 election and then again in the lead up Uh, not so much, but to a degree in the lead up to the 2020 election. I don't think we spent as much time covering the middle of the country as we did the coasts. And I think that there um, there are ideas that people have, there are worries that people have, there are insecurities and uh, issues of trust that they have. And there are aspects of their lives that I think the press didn't do as good a job listening to and covering, again, in the run-up to 2016 and again in 2020. And I think we have to be very careful because so much of the media, as the two of you know very well, is concentrated in Washington, D.C., in New York City, on the West Coast, on, on Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then, of course, the major cities around the country from Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, Denver, and and so on. And I think we have to be sure we are paying attention to Americans where they are. And, and I believe that some of that mistrust may have grown because they felt the news we were covering didn't reflect them and what their worries are. And we have to, we have to pay attention to that. And we're trying. At least I am. We are at the news. Now, that's a very interesting perspective. I actually, as you started the sentence, I thought you were going to go to, we covered Donald Trump to the exclusion of other candidates and gave him air. But I think your point is equally valid and very interesting for what might need to be done. Another criticism of the media is that they're focused too much on ratings and that they're covering stories that they think will attract viewers rather than on just getting the truth out and emphasizing what the facts are. Is there some truth to that? Um, and is that a concern at PBS? Well, it's it's not a concern for us at PBS. I mean, we clearly want people to watch and we do pay attention to ratings and we're very happy to, uh, we are very happy to have learned over the last several years that our ratings have grown uh, during, uh, certainly during the election seasons and 
And during the pandemic, people have gravitated to PBS and we're very grateful for that. Um, but I think in commercial television where I've worked, I worked in local news and then for NBC. And after a time at the news hour earlier, I did work for CNN for 12 years. There clearly is a focus on ratings and management. Um, it's, it's a business. And these news organizations are often owned by much bigger companies. In the case of CNN, it was Time Warner. Um, and of course, that's, you know, that's evolved. CBS has had a larger owner of Viacom and NBC uh, and so on. And so um, every one of these is a business. And the owners are saying, OK, how have you done for me in the last quarter, in the last reporting period, ratings reporting period? And you hear uh, references to sweeps week. Um, when when uh, the, we know the ratings are being gathered and everybody's putting, you know, every news organization is putting on stories that they think will gather the most eyeballs. Some of that is understandable. Everybody wants people to be watching them. But when that begins to drive what you are covering and how you're covering it, it's a problem. And frankly, that's been a problem in commercial in commercial news, less so. Uh, certainly with print media, but even with print media. And I realize I'm getting into big generalizations here and making sweeping statements. I don't want to say that all news media does that, but I think that broadly we have been guilty in commercial media, especially of paying attention to eyeballs and ratings numbers um, and letting that drive what we cover uh, when we need to be focused on what do people need to know? What are the what are the stories that affect your life? I mean, as we have come into the next election, as you make a decision about how to raise your children and, you know, what taxes you should be paying and what our foreign policy should be. Um, those are those are the that's the framing that this, these decisions should come in rather than, um, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, which, as we know, has been the mantra for a long time. Right. One last follow-up to, to what you said when you were talking about the work that you at PBS do, and it, it, I think it's probably true at most of the major networks and cable channels, is the research and the delving you do into things. And nowadays, it's so easy for people to check out whether you are right or wrong because of the internet. It's very easy, or if you even read a newspaper online, if it says so-and-so was indicted and it tells you certain basic facts, you can click on the word indictment and you can read it for yourself. And I just would wish that people would spend more time doing that instead of, as you said, believing everything they hear. Um, but I, I know Victor has some more questions on a related issue. Yeah, I, I just something that you said, I think really struck me and I, and I just have one follow-up question for that. And it's kind of for me, what I noticed between 2016 and 2020 after Trump got elected was how the media interacted with voters and the assumptions that they made in 2020 that was different than 2016. I'm wondering if you saw any difference, or at least maybe you and how you approached your job and how you approached those Republican voters that you may have un misunderstood in 2016 and kind of how that relationship changed between like the media and the voters. Well, it's so interesting, Victor, because I think those of us who cover politics for a living, which I've done my entire adult life, you know, we think we're pretty good at going out and interviewing a lot of voters and, 
And from that gleaning, you know, sort of where they're coming from, why they tend to gravitate to one party or another, political party or another, or why they like one candidate and why they shift in their thinking. They may start out a season liking one person, but then that changes and how their thinking changes. I mean, to me, that's the most fascinating thing of all the work that I do in politics is understanding what goes on in the mind of the voter. But I I do think because there was such a dismissal of Donald Trump in the beginning in 2016, I mean, people, everybody thought, I mean, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals thought there was no chance in the world this man, Donald Trump, who, you know, had been a reality television host and a real estate developer in New York City, had been in the tabloids, you know, headlines for years. Was There was no way he was going to be elected president. And then, boom, he was winning debate after debate, and he was winning primary after primary. And lo and behold, he was the nominee. And, oh, there was no way he was going to win the election. And then, and that, that conceit hung in there right up until election night at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 or whenever when we announced that he had won and Hillary Clinton had lost. And I think it was such a sort of a smack upside the head for a lot of reporters. We all declared after that, okay, we missed this story big time. We're going to go out and we're going to talk to people in a way. But I I think we probably gravitated away from that. Um, Some of it is because we get so, I I don't know, I think we, we, we all want to cover the story in Washington. And frankly, it's expensive to get out in the country and cover uh, parts of America that are not an easy plane ride or a car drive from Washington or New York or Los Angeles or Denver, wherever we, we happen to, to, to have our headquarters. It's not that we don't ever pay attention to those voters, but I think we didn't do a good enough job. And we certainly didn't, you know, we continued not to do a good enough job leading up to 2020, better than 2016. But um, but it was a it was a tough lesson for us, and it's one that I hope we don't forget in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just changing topics a little bit, you know, speaking more kind of into like this local perspective. Um, you know, as a resident of Chicago, Jill and I were both in Chicago, where we used to have many local newspapers, and now have two on life support and. The threat to local news is a problem nationwide, not just here in Chicago. And really, the COVID pandemic has kind of accelerated this decline in local news coverage um, as over, I think I saw 30 newspapers closed or merged in just one month between April and May of last year, 2020. So I'd like to kind of ask you about what you make of this decline of local news and kind of how harmful that is um, to journalism and, and civic life and politics. I think it's dreadful. <laughs> As I said at the outset, sometimes this topic is not so uplifting, and this is a big part of what I was referring to. I mean, the, the dirty little secret about television news is that, yes, there are so many fantastic journalists who work in broadcast news, but we don't have the numbers of staff that that newspapers traditionally have. They've been able to afford to hire more reporters, more editors, more people to do research than television. I can't, I want to, don't want to go into all the reasons for that, but generally you find fewer reporters working for a local television station than you do for, for newspapers. That's been historically the case. The dirty little secret is that newspapers generated for the longest time so many stories that television would pick up on. Didn't mean television didn't do any reporting. We certainly do. We have great entrepreneurial work that's been done, being done, will be done. And I'm not denigrating television, but I'm saying we depend so much on that that just deep reporting 
that newspapers are, have been able to do. And certainly Chicago, the Tribune, the Sun-Times. I mean, these, were, these have been storied newspapers with incredible legacies, um, award-winning journalism being done in Chicago and in other major cities across the country. But, but you know, with the Internet, <laughs> you know, the news is free. You don't have to pay anything to get the news. You just turn on your, your computer and there it is, boom. And, and so many news sites decided not to be behind what they call a paywall, meaning um, there was no income. And then, of course, newspapers, you know, losing the revenue uh, from, from advertising. We've had now hundreds and hundreds of newspapers shut down. Um, and it's been a, a huge loss for, for our democracy. Why? Because our democracy, I mean, the founding fathers were wise enough to put in the First Amendment, not just freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and the rest of it, but freedom of the press. Because we need to, to know that, that there are a group of people out there who are dedicated to getting the facts and sharing them with the public. They're, it's called journalism. It's that simple. And when we have fewer of them, which we do today, um, and fewer of them doing it for what I call the right reason, which is fact-gathering, rather than just spewing opinion, then our democracy suffers. That's what we've got going on right now. We don't have enough... We, we've never lived in a more complicated time than we do right now in terms of our health, in terms of our economy, education, our population is bigger, young people are having issues, middle career, middle age people are having issues, the aging are having issues. We need to be covering all of this, raising children, you name it. And yet, I mean, and, and frankly, in ways that we didn't even used to do. When I started out in reporting, we didn't cover families or how you raise children. We, we covered politics or we covered business or sports and weather. But today it's much more uh, varied and deeper than that. And at a time when we need the best reporting we've ever needed, instead, newspapers are shutting down. Now, having said that, there are great, there are phenomenal online sites that are popping up around the country. Younger journalists, I find, want to go into journalism because they're just, they just realize it's important they're curious and they, I mean, I, goodness, I mean, every week we have somebody, I have somebody coming up to me asking, you know, can I work at the news hour? I'd love, I really want to get into journalism. So I don't think the interest in journalism has waned, but I, I do worry about the health of journalism and sorry, this answer is so long, but you can tell how strongly I feel. No, definitely. And I, and I think, you know, just, I'm a subscriber to, to the patch, which is kind of like the local journalism. Um, and, and it's so vital for, democracy and also like our community. And I'm wondering what you think are kind of the long-term implications. If we, if this decline does continue, like how will citizens elect mayors and school boards without this local like coverage on the ground? My question is, can you have democracy in the dark? I mean, can you have government in the dark? I mean, I, I remember I, I was speaking at a, a convention of uh, state legislators in Pennsylvania. This has been about 10 or 15 years ago, it was right when, maybe 10 years ago, it was right when um, uh, local newspapers were starting to shut down. I had several of them come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I really miss the, the reporter uh, uh, coming up to me in my community. You know, and they, they would say, you know, the county commissioners are saying the same thing. Nobody shows up when the county commission meets. Nobody shows up when the school board meets. 
people aren't covering these obscure hearings in the state legislature. Sure, they go when there's a hot button issue. If I don't know if it's abortion or today, you know, redistricting the voting law changes. There, there are stories that people are now going back to state legislatures to cover. But in general, um, the issues that matter most around, again, around education, around taxing, around uh, what it, what's your money being spent on, health care, there's often there are no reporters or very few reporters covering these things. And and it's government in the dark. If 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 you don't if you don't have um, eyes and ears in there writing about it, asking questions, holding our public officials accountable, we can't have a strong democracy. And it's it's truly just as simple as that. And the future of our democracy is at stake. You know, related to what you're talking about in terms of the decline of local coverage, there's another issue I see, which is the general decline in news consumption. And it's not a question of how it's consumed, whether it's on television or in a newspaper or whether it's through streaming and digital content, but just that people aren't following the news. They may be doing it through social media, a completely unreliable source. And also that the age of news consumers is now trending much older uh, than necessary to keep our voters informed, um, particularly when we see the numbers that the uh, election of Joe Biden depended a lot on young voters. So how do we overcome that? How do we get younger people to start being news consumers? You know, Jill, it's it's interesting. I, I've talked with a lot of, certainly with young people about this, but also with colleagues. And you're right, in the tra- the traditional forms of news, um, you do see the audience growing older. I mean, and this has been the case on the television evening news for for some time. We we know the audiences are what over fifty five, over sixty, sixty five. They're the ones who are sitting in front of a television set at uh, six o'clock, six thirty, seven o'clock at night. But we also know that. Um, that younger people, people who are in the ages when they're raising their children in the 30s and 40s and they're busy with family and jobs and, and frankly, for some people who are holding down two or three jobs, they don't have time to sit in front of a TV or to pull out the newspaper. They're going to get the news wherever they can get it, whether it's um, on their um, smartphone, Facebook feed, or maybe they barely have time to pay attention to the news. And what we've got to do, those of us who are in journalism, is just make sure as we serve all these different platforms, and by the way, we are doing this today at the News Hour. We are a nightly news program on television. But equally, if not more important to us today, is making sure that the YouTube feed that goes out, uh, the stories we do on Instagram, uh, that are, that are uh, part of what we do on Facebook, that we are serving all of those platforms, Twitter and the rest of it. Although I think of Twitter today as so much of it, sort of the way journalists talk to each other. But for the public, Facebook, YouTube, um, so that if, even, if, even if that young person is only getting a, a minute look or a 15 or 30 second look at something, they're at least getting it accurately. And then if they're curious, as you said a minute ago, they can click on a link, they can go to the original Supreme Court decision, or they can read, you know, what is in that, what is in the, the, the President Biden's jobs and infrastructure bill that might affect 
you know, the job that I want or what is in his family's plan that would affect child care. Um, so, you know, there is that option. And, and, and that brings us to our education system in this country. Are we teaching young people in school how to get information? Are we making them good consumers of news? Um, and I think, you know, that has to be part. I know there's an effort underway. There's been underway in this country to make sure that one of the things young people are taught is not just you get an education and then you leave and you move on to a job and so forth, but that you continue to, to gather, to pick up news that you need throughout your whole life because you're going to need it. It's going to matter in your life. It's going to matter in the lives of your children. And so our school systems, our schools have a big responsibility in that arena. We in the news media have that responsibility, and so do they. We all do. I think critical thinking skills are probably the biggest missing component in education. But I want to turn to something you said earlier um, about the work that you do at PBS to make sure your facts are accurate and that all media will have to someday be held accountable. And so I want to turn to the Foxitis defense that's being uh, put forward for one of the January 6th insurrectionists saying, he watched so much Fox News that he started to believe what they were saying um, and look at things like the Smartmatic and Dominion lawsuits against Fox for defamation. And whether you think that these things will eventually allow Fox to be held accountable for perpetrating lies and um, maybe stopping them, do you think that's a possibility? Well, I think it's it's already had an effect, somewhat of an effect, um, I believe, on the organization Newsmax because they've apologized on air for some of their reporting or made a correction on air, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about some of the things we were reported. Perhaps that's true also of OAN, another uh, conservative news outlet, and, and, I, and I believe, and I know Fox has as well. But I think that's, in a way, that's, you know, that's, that's, one step in in that direction, um, I think in terms of wholesale changing points of view because uh, or rather despite the fact that it's being spewed or presented nonstop on a by a particular news organization, that's a much tougher uh, question to answer. And I I don't think the rest of us in journalism can address that overnight as much as we would like to. We would like to think, you know, we can somehow tell it like it is and that's going to be contagious and pretty soon everybody's going to be doing that. Um, I think we're past that point. I think um, it is going to take time. I, I look to, frankly, the younger generation of Americans and, and in, in hopes that they will recognize a fact as a fact and a falsehood is a falsehood. Um, and, and in fact, some of what we're seeing right now is specifically around something that happened at a moment in time. It was the election in November of 2020. It was January the 6th, 2021. Um, perhaps with the passage of time, um, uh, memories will change, uh, passions will cool, and we'll move on. Um, but beyond that, I don't have a magic solution. I would love to tell you we could wave a magic wand and, you know, this, this sort of spewing of false information would end. 
but we know that's that's not the case. I will also say that you know I recognize that that none of us in the news media are the fount of all wisdom. We don't have it all perfect. We make mistakes sometimes. The difference is that when we make a mistake, we correct it. I mean, that's my absolute uh, message to all of my colleagues is if, if we make a mistake, you correct it immediately. I certainly feel that way no matter how small it is. Correct it. Because otherwise, how do you have any credibility? For us, for the news hour, our credibility is the only thing we have. And once we've lost that, we've lost everything. But, but when you're living in a, in a world where there's one universe of reality and another universe that's different from reality, I, I think you're talking about something else. And I think the only thing, I, I don't have a magic solution. I, I, I just come back to the passage of time. And I know that's not satisfactory to many people. It's not satisfactory to me. It's, it's satisfactory in the sense that I've asked that question of many, many journalists and politicians because I think it is one of the biggest issues of our day. Um, and so far, no one has come up with a really solid answer. I was optimistic when I saw Lou Dobbs fired and you know, a $1.3 billion lawsuit against Fox. That seems to me it'll get their attention and make them think twice about spewing lies that are clearly, you know, you said you make a mistake, you correct it. They aren't making a mistake. They know that they're saying things that are not based on fact. So that's the difference. And that's why I'm concerned about the lies on Fox and, and, and other outlets. I don't mean to just pick on Fox. There are many other outlets that are perpetrating what I consider to be, we're, we're not just saying misinformation or disinformation, they're blatant lies. So um, uh, I think, Victor, let's talk about maybe how PBS NewsHour is the counter to that. Yeah, it certainly is. And I wish, you know, I agree with Judy. I wish, I wish I could just wave a magic wand and somehow get some sense knocked into those like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, but that seems um, uh, uh, not possible in the distant future. But um, we do have PBS NewsHour, which is unique because it was formed during, um, or it, the show was formed during uh, Watergate hearings with the aim during of holding, Watergate. right, right, during the uh, holding uh, the powerful accountable, giving the American people this unvarnished, um, unfiltered look at what was occurring then. And as a viewer of your show now, it seems to me that, you know, every night you continue that mission of objective reporting. And that's something that you mentioned earlier um, on the show. When you see the amount of misinformation being spewed now, um, what do you think and do you th like, I guess, how do you think we can actually reach Fox viewers and how do you approach your job in that as, um, you know, a, a host of, of something that was formed during the Watergate hearings? I don't know the answer to that. All I can say is that what we try to do every day is to think of our audience as everyone. We're not trying to reach just a narrow group of Americans who have a particular point of view. We are speaking to all Americans who want information that they can that they can trust, uh, who want to learn, who want to, you know, want to, frankly, uh, who want to hear some of the debate, great debates of our time, who want to hear um, uh, an expert who is, I don't know whether, you know, whether you're talking about in the in the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, death, what should be done about police reform? What is what are some 
solutions that um, can be practically worked out. We, we have those kinds of discussions. We bring on people with different views about that. And our hope is that not in telling people what to think, but in giving them information, they can make up their own minds. But you're getting, Victor, at something which is, I think, interesting, which is if people come to you with their mind already made up and they're not open to new information, whether they're from the left or the right, um, you know, in a way, there's going to be a limit uh, to what to what can to what can get through, if you will. But I never want to assume that uh, we, again, I said a minute ago, we're not the fount of all wisdom. We're definitely not that. We don't have all the answers. We are open to new ideas. We want to hear from people who have different ideas, and we want to share that. And in the end, in the end, it's the American people who will make up their minds. Um, but the way we, the best, the best, we can do our, the best way we can do our job is to make sure we are looking out there, that we are listening, that we're looking, that we're gathering, and that we're not shutting out a particular point of view. It can be very tempting to shut out what we consider to be intolerant points of view. We know they exist, but our job is to listen to all, to put it all together and have people make up their minds. Um, and again, I'm going to come back to, to, something that we discussed a moment ago, the younger generation, I believe looking at what we see right now, seeing the, the extreme partisan divide in this country, it's not as bad as a civil war, thank God. It's not as bad as a time in the mid 19th century when the country was split in half with terribly different, completely different views on, on you know, slavery and, and the issues that drove that terrible war that divided the country. But it's, it's, you know, it's pretty bad right now. I mean, people are, people are at each other's throats, figuratively speaking. And thank goodness they're not at each other's throats physically. I mean, you know, not to say that people don't get into a fight every once in a while, but passions are running high right now. And I'm hoping that the younger generation looks at this and says, you know, there's got to be a way for us to sit down and at least have a conversation in our own family, in our own school, in our own neighborhood, among friends, um, and and to talk these things through. And maybe that will that will spread to our legislators and our 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 policymakers, our politicians, because otherwise, I don't know how long it's going to take to work our way through this. I totally agree. And I think just one of the best part of the News Hour show is having um, Jonathan Capehart and um, David Brooks just, you have a conservative, you have a Democrat, and they both offer their perspective. And it's, I think, that perspective that's missing so much in these um, news organizations. But one last question, maybe, on, on the state of news. Do you think we'll ever return to a time like Watergate when people can't agree on the same facts? You know, it's interesting. On 9-11, Victor, you were probably... What? I don't think I was born. You, know, you, know, you were born after that. I was thinking the last time I remember the country coming together in a way I had not seen uh, was was after 9-11. It did feel the country, the country had been attacked and the country came together. Republicans, here we were just, what, nine months after the very divisive election of 2000. In fact, that was another very divided moment in the country, Al Gore. Uh, the people who supported Al Gore 
said he's got more votes, but the point is in the Electoral College, uh, as the Supreme Court decided it, uh, Florida, you know, in the Florida legislature, I don't have to go through all that again. But the point is the country was very divided then. A lot of people said after George Bush became president that it, you know, that it had been an, a, quote, illegitimate process. But, but essentially people accepted it. It was a Supreme Court. It was part of our constitutional process. Al Gore made a, a speech in which he made a very gracious concession. So that was put aside. But there were still there were still bitter feelings. Along comes 9-11, the country's attack, the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, um, the, the Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And for a moment, for a matter of months, a little over a year, the country was together. And then we, we divided up again on the decision on whether or not to, to invade Iraq. We were together, I think, on the country was generally together on what to do about Afghanistan, because it was felt that that's where al-Qaeda was based. But Iraq was another story, and, uh, and we, we pretty quickly. Uh, but that was, what, 20 years ago. Um, you know, maybe it'll take, maybe it'll take another um, few years for us to see that. But I certainly don't want it to happen uh, because of some horrible attack um, like we saw on 9-11. I'm trying to think of a more uplifting note for us to end this conversation. I think I have a way to be more uplifting, and that's to talk about your career in journalism. Uh, it's as fascinating as your take on the news and journalism. So um, I read your memoir, This is Judy Woodruff at the White House, when you first wrote it in 1982. And you described yourself as an army brat who had moved several times, including once from Oklahoma to Germany. You went to Meredith College to study math and then transferred to Duke to study political science. So I want to start there and have you tell us about, you know, how you went from math to political science and what were you thinking about in terms of a career at that point and what changed your plans and got you interested in journalism? Well, it's not a long story. I'll try to not. I'll try to give you the shorter version of it. But the fact is, it does go back to uh, the fact that um, I was raised by a stay-at-home mom who um, didn't graduate from from high school. Um, she barely finished tenth grade. Her father died when she was fourteen years old. My mother. She married my father, um, who, of course, was in World War II. I was born after the war. But neither one of my parents, in fact, he didn't get his high school degree until he was in the army. But my mother in particular always said to me, you're going to get an education. You're going to get a college. You're going to have a career. Um, diapers and dishes can wait. This was the mantra um, because she had gotten married and had had children um, and and always felt, you know, that not in a way that was that was sour at all, but, but it was something she didn't want her daughters uh, to repeat. Uh, so I grew up knowing I was going to go to college, but not knowing what I was going to do because we moved a lot. And I, frankly, there were no role models of women working. It just didn't exist. I mean, women were either, they were homemakers, which we celebrate, and goodness knows that's such an important role uh, for women and for men today. Um, but the women I knew, the mothers of my friends were either a couple of them who worked outside the home were nurses or secretaries. I had one friend whose mother worked in the county treasurer's office. 
This was in Augusta, Georgia, where we moved after living in Taiwan and Germany and Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri and uh, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey and back in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, long story short, my there were no role models and I happened to have a teacher in high school who said, you know, you're really good in math. You ought to, you ought to uh, think about majoring in math. And I love math. I love science. I love physics, actually, even though the teacher, get this, never called on the two girls in our class senior year in high school the entire year because he thought, I guess he thought girls shouldn't be taking physics. So lo and behold, I go to college saying, declaring I'm going to major in math. I'm, I'm taking a course in calculus at an all-women's college, Meredith in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the, the professor who's an instructor, who's a grad student at another school, lets us know that we're all, we've made a mistake by uh, choosing math because women really shouldn't be majoring in, in math or studying advanced math. So I was getting a very negative vibe from that instructor. At the same time, I was taking a course in political science. The uh, uh, political science professor couldn't have been more magnetic, got me so excited in politics. And I, during the course of my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, I made the change. But it's not so much for me, but I think of all the girls who were discouraged from going into math, science at the same time I was. It was the mid-1960s. So I, I left off in 1969, so you've got a long way to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the point at which you answered, or, or the point at which your answer stopped is sort of exactly when I became a lawyer, although my original intent was to, like you, be a journalist. Uh, I only went to law school because of the gender bias in journalism. I was being offered jobs on the woman's page, not on the news pages. And But if I had followed my original plan, I, like you, would have been starting journalism in the mid-60s, um, a little before you, though. Um, and I just wonder whether my experience in being offered jobs on the woman's page was something that you encountered when you finished and started to enter journalism. You know, it's so interesting, Jill, because, um, you know, what happened was women, I found that women were not really wanted in, in math. And so I switched my major to political science, worked in Washington for a couple of summers for my Congress congressman and was told by other women on Capitol Hill not to come back to Washington to work on the Hill or even in government because women weren't being taken seriously, that I would be get I would get a job at a gopher level at best and wouldn't advance. So I went back to Duke my senior year and said to one of my professors, what am I going to do? I love politics and I wanted work in politics and government. And he, he said to me, well, you know, do you ever think about covering politics? Um, it, it was it was at a time, it was during the Vietnam War as that was heating up. And I at that point, I did start to think about journalism, but it wasn't until my senior year in college. And then, of course, I applied for a job, realized you couldn't get one without any. I'd never written for the for the school paper. I didn't have any clips to show. Um, so I, I wasn't going to be offered anything but a secretary's job in, in a newsroom. And that was my first job. But I wasn't even smart enough to realize, you know, the fact that women weren't, you know, women were being discouraged 
in the field of math and science. They were being discouraged in politics. I gravitated to journalism because I ran into that. You kind of went in the other direction. Once I got into journalism um, and, and was secretary, my first, the first news director I had after six months, I started pestering him to let me go out with a crew. I said, just let me follow them. I'll do one of my off hours on weekends. He said, why would you want to do that? We already have a woman reporter. And they did. They had one woman. And, and she covered garden parties and did the, week, did the weather. Um, and, but, it, but it did turn. This was, 19, it was getting close to 1970. The women's movement was building. Um, and there was another station in town. The NBC affiliate had hired a woman to cover politics. And we had a new news director come in uh, where, where, where I was hired. And they wanted, they were just starting to hire women, but it was the very early stages. We were tokens. Um, and, uh, but across the board, women, you were on the, in the vanguard. I was in the vanguard. And it was, it was, it was a fitful, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And, but you know what? We persisted and here we are. You persisted and you spoke up for yourself. You went to him and you said, what's going on here and why can't I do this? Um, which is a lesson I also learned at the Department of Justice is if you don't speak up, you will continue to be doing not the work that you were hired to do or that you want to do. Um, and I'm assuming that the gender composition, you were the only woman in the newsroom? When, the, when I was hired as a secretary, um, there was there was the the weather girl they called them. And by the way, they 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 at one point along the way, about a year in as the secretary, they fired the weekend weather girl. The news director, knowing I wanted to be a reporter, came to me and said, "Would you like to audition for this?" And I said, "No, I have a political science degree from Duke University. I want to be a serious reporter." And he said, look, if you're ever going to get, if you ever want to be taken seriously, you've got to get some on air, something under your belt so people can see whether you have any ability. And so I very reluctantly tried out for the weekend. It was one weekend weather newscast, Sunday nights, 11 p.m. I came in, they did hire me. I auditioned and against my will was hired. But it was like Cinderella. I was still the newsroom secretary gopher during the week, Monday through Friday, but then I'd come in on Sunday nights at six o'clock, go through the weather newswire, memorize what I was going to do and go on for three to four or five minutes at 11 o'clock. And that was it. Um, but neither one of us, I, it, you know, it was sort of a mutually uh, agreed thing after six months that this wasn't my shtick. And, uh, and I stopped doing it and then was hired to be a reporter at the, at the CBS, that was the ABC station, and I was hired at the CBS station. And there were no other women. You're right, when they first hired me, but the new news director came in and they did hire another woman after that. They hired an African-American woman within a year after they hired, maybe two years after they hired me. So they were beginning to make changes, but we were still the exception rather than the rule. Right, and I love that you were the weather girl. And that will help you to understand why my book is called The Watergate Girl, because that's what we were called back then. It captures the era in a way nothing else can. Uh, but maybe, so that wasn't your most exciting moment. Um, can you talk about some, as a young journalist at local stations, what some 
exciting stories were that gave you the kind of experience that led you to become a White House correspondent for NBC? Well, I covered, I was so fortunate to be, and, and you know, by happenstance, I was in Georgia where, you know, that former peanut farmer had been elected governor, Jimmy Carter, and I knew his people were serious about running for president. So when I applied for a job with the networks in late 1974, it happened to be the same time that Carter and his people were were just, you know, going full steam ahead. We didn't know it in the press. I mean, they were doing all this behind the scenes, but they were working madly to put together a national campaign. I knew they were working. We knew they were taking it seriously. We didn't know how they were doing stacked up against the other Democrats who wanted uh, the nomination. Um, But it became clear pretty quickly. I I did a a report in Iowa on Carter in October of 1975 for NBC, um, where he was sleeping in the homes. He was spending the night in the homes of uh, Democratic supporters. And and, and it, it was clear to us that he was putting this national campaign together methodically, carefully, in a way that you just didn't see Morris Udall, Mo Udall, or Scoop Jackson, or Birch Bayh, or some of the other Democrats who were who were running that year. So that was a, you know, I was lucky, let's face it, I was, I was in the right place at the right time, and, you know, and I forever appreciated that. Um, you know, it's, you know, we all have to take advantage of where we are. Um, but that the fact that he went on to then win the nomination, win the election. I had to lobby NBC like crazy to send me to Washington because they already had a team at the White House. But they ultimately, you know, they got sick of having me pester them and saying, you know, I have decent sources inside his campaign. They finally said, OK, you can go. You're third man on the totem pole. You can do weekends and mornings and overnight. Uh, but they did send me to Washington. And and I've just refused to leave ever. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> was that a big difference to go to uh, NBC and become a White House correspondent? Um, and, and maybe, I guess, also, like, what were the differences between, like, first being in local journalism and then going to cover the White House? Night and day. I mean, I was uh, night and day. I, I was a local reporter, even though I thought I was a hot shot and I was covering the state legislature and <clears throat> Atlanta politics, which was fascinating at that time. It was nothing like going to work for the network. NBC hired me in early 1975 to be a general assignment reporter based in Atlanta. I was covering the 10 states of the Southeast. So I was basically from from North Carolina to Florida and then west uh, to Louisiana and up. I was also assigned to the Caribbean. So I once covered a hanging in the Bahamas, um, a terrible story. I had to stand, stood outside the prison to report on that. I covered hurricanes. I became the wildlife reporter. I covered uh, a blackbird kill in Kentucky. I covered fire ant plagues in South Georgia. You name it. I mean, I cut my teeth doing all of that, but also knowing that I wanted to cover politics. And um, I have to say the editing, the, the scrutiny I received from the editor of the NBC Nightly News was so much beyond anything I had received in local television. I had an editor in local in local news, but at the network, they went over every bit of copy with a fine tooth comb. And you, I mean, I, I remember hearing, holding the phone away from my ear, 
because the editor, Gil Milstein, would be screaming at me, how could you possibly say they gathered around? They can't gather around. I mean, I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. Um, but it was good. I mean, that's how I learned. I learned every word counts in reporting. And of course, you're trying to do everything succinctly. You go out and you cover. You may spend all day, two days, three days covering a story. You come back with it. You've got to condense it to a minute and a half, two minutes. It's got to be, you've got to go to the most important information. It's got to be accurate. It's got to be well-written. It's got to be compelling. The sound bites, we call them sound cuts then, have to be the best. Um, and you have to be able to present it on camera in a way that's compelling. So uh, it was a steep learning curve. I love what I did in local news, but it was, a, it was a big jump up once I got to the network and a lot more scrutiny. But I, I will say this, I have to add this, that yes, there was, there was scrutiny from the editor of the program, but there wasn't so much scrutiny of your overall performance. I mean, I think today younger reporters get more guidance. In a way, I always said, I started to tell colleagues, I felt like it was sort of sink or swim. They'd throw you out there. They would scrutinize your individual reporting, but they wouldn't tell you how you were doing overall. They were just sort of watching. And I always felt like the women were sort of pitted against each other. You know, how is she doing against her? And, you know, let's let's see how they do. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting, and especially for my generation to hear that evolution of journalism and, and how you approach that job. Just kind of fast forward in your life, you then moved to, CB, uh, to PBS um, where you hosted uh, Frontline with Judy Woodruff. Um, did you see your job as an anchor any differently than as a reporter? Well, I had started anchoring um, uh, for some reason. The local station I worked, where I worked in Atlanta as a reporter, state legislature, they wanted me to come in and anchor the noon news starting in 1972. So I did do the noon news for a while. I even did the evening news for a while, but I was also reporting at the same time. So I'd had a little bit of experience. And then going to uh, PBS, I was filling in whenever Jim Lehrer or Robin McNeil were, um, uh, take, would take the day off or the week off. They asked me to be a substitute anchor. The difference is for me that you're not in the field. I mean, it's obvious I'm saying you're not in the field. You're not out there asking the questions. And I miss that. And even though my career has evolved into that of an anchor, I've always felt it was important to keep the editorial role. I mean, my title today is anchor and managing editor, because I think I have to, I have to be part of the story lineup, uh, figuring out which stories we're going to cover, how we're going to cover them, what's going to end up on the program. Uh, there are others involved in that process, our executive producer and other editors and producers, but I am very much in the mix. Um, but that's the main difference um, as an anchor, is feeling that you're so dependent on others for information, and you have to be able to trust what they're telling you, and you, ha- you want to be able to ask them questions. I really like it. The part, one of the, my favorite parts of the news hour is being able to have people like Yamiche Alcindor or Lisa Desjardins or Amna Nawaz or Nick Schifrin or William Brangham, one of our amazing correspondents, John Yang, come on and have me talk with them about their reporting so they can share more. It's just such a, uh, I, I think for an anchor, you have to have that pipeline, not to mention we have to do our own reporting. 
Um, but it's it's just not quite the same because you're not reporting on the air as an anchor. You're essentially uh, introducing the work of others and and interviewing. On the news hour, our job is is to do interviewing. I don't want to leave out that part of it, but the anchor part of it is 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 introducing other people's work. The key thing about the news hour is that the anchor also does significant interviews. I'm able to do um, newsmaker interviews and interviews with some of our regular guests, like you mentioned Jonathan Capehart and, uh, and David Brooks on Friday nights. Following up on your anchoring, you also, uh, you moved to um, PBS and then to CNN. You anchored um, Inside Politics as well as Worldview, an international program. So we've talked about the difference between just being a reporter, being an anchor, but then taking on international news, given your background had been in domestic and local. Was that another big change for you? It was, Jill, and I had to depend very much then on on staff. I mean, the, the thing that I've always brought with me is curiosity. I mean, I like, I guess, all the reporters we know, you have a voracious appetite for news, for information, and I'm always asking why and how and um, how come? And those are the questions, you know, I'm always going to have when I approach a, a news story. And so the same it is, the same way it is with international news. But you're right, there was a time I came to CNN to co-anchor Inside Politics with Bernard Shaw, who was uh, then kind of had been, frankly, kind of a CNN fixture. He'd been there from the very beginning, whereas I joined in 1993 and stayed with them for 12 years. Um, Bernie was already a fixture on CNN. I was I was the newbie uh, at the time. But they asked us also to co-anchor the international news program. And we were interviewing world leaders and uh, a little bit of travel, but mainly mainly working uh, from home base, whether it was for me, it was Washington and Bernie. It was Washington. Sometimes we'd be asked to go to Atlanta. But we we you know, there were interviews with the president. There were interviews with with uh, with foreign leaders, with members of Congress, uh, secretaries of state. Um, and I, I think the one of the differences for me was rem, was rem, being reminded that even though CNN, I mean, you know, we're often used to calling it foreign news. CNN is an international news organization. And even though CNN domestic channel is shown in the U.S. and CNN I or CNN International is shown, Internationally, we were told you never say foreign affairs or foreign news. You say international news or international affairs. And so um, I was reminded, which, you know, I should have been aware of in the first place, that the United States is one country out of many. And yes, it's a very special place. And yes, we love it and we cherish our system of government. But there are, you know, billions of other people on the planet who have different points of view. And uh, for me, it was a healthy, a very healthy process to go through, uh, to be reminded of that. And how do you prepare to start covering something like international news for the first time? Uh, other than relying on staff and, and resources, you must have to read and learn a great deal. Yeah, read and read and read and cultivate sources. I mean, sources... Um, whether they're in the administration or sources with other governments. You know, as you know, Washington is a home of uh, embassies, um, uh, liaison offices for every 
country uh, practically on on the planet. And so we're able we were able to, you know, once I was at CNN, I found that it was much easier to get ambassadors and uh, uh, deputy chiefs of mission to return my call or people uh, who work on a particular issue with a with a with a government and an embassy in Washington. So it, it's extra work. It's it's extra work. You've got to you're you want to have the American perspective, the United States perspective, but you also want to get the perspective of that those other governments or that government. And not to mention the international organizations, the UN agencies, which are based in New York. But we also found, Jill, that often these other governments were cultivating us. I mean, I remember there was a time when one of the many times there had been a dispute between the United States and Iran. The Iranian government was trying very hard to get their officials on American television and on CNN. And so, I mean, it's, it's great when they want to be on your air. And then it's your responsibility to ask them uh, the, the right questions, to hold them accountable, to be just as, as you know, as, as uh, uh, probing as you would be if you're interviewing an American uh, politician. I just want to ask a few questions about PBS before Victor asked the last questions of the podcast. And that is, you were there and then you left and then you returned again. And so I want to know what the draw of PBS was. How, how did you feel about them that you ended up staying with them for so long and returning to them? Honestly, it was Jim Lehrer, the person who I knew very, very well. He had hired me initially back in 1983. I left NBC to go to work for PBS, which a lot of people thought, told me, my colleagues told me I was crazy at the time to leave the big mother network to go to work for a little old PBS NewsHour, brand, brand new hour-long news program. But I was so intrigued by the idea of an hour of news, you know, back when the commercial networks kept saying, we're going to try to get an hour. But they never were able to get the local stations, the affiliates, to give them that extra half hour. So they've remained at half an hour or 22 minutes, as they say, after commercials and so forth. But to me, to have a whole hour, of, to be able to do conversations of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, that was in the early 80s. Today, it's 2020, 20, The audience attention span isn't as long as it was then, but we can still spend more time. We can be more... I like to believe uh, more uh, uh, in depth in our in our reporting. Time matters when you're conveying information. If you have another minute or two or three to share information, that is priceless. Um, and you can just convey more than you can in a 15 second spot or a 30 second spot or 45. I mean, I my dear friends who work at the commercial networks. They love what they do and they do it so well, but they will t say privately, you know, so frustrating. They'll say, I had to cut that down, that interview down to 15 seconds, or I had only a minute to tell the whole story. We may have only seven or eight or nine minutes or 10 minutes. I mean, I interviewed Speaker Pelosi uh, last week for, um, it was actually an, an interview done for uh, an organization, public broadcasting out in Seattle, and it, they put on a something that they call the Crosscut Festival. So I interviewed her for something like 35 minutes, but we cut it down to, I think it was 10 or 11 minutes for the news hour. I mean, that's a, a nice chunk of time that you wouldn't normally get on a, on a, a commercial network. You, know, you wouldn't get close to that much time. 
So time matters, but it's also the people. I'm going to come back to the people. I mean, I love Jim Lehrer. He was the one who hired me. I love Robin McNeil, who's still around. Jim, of, of course, passed away a little over a year ago. But the, but the people who work there um, are driven to get the story, get it right, get it, you know, make sure that we are answering people's questions. Um, there's just a, a family feeling, I think, um, to the news hour uh, that, that I cherish. And then to PBS. PBS is about education. It was founded as educational television back in 1961 when Newt Minow gave that, that unforgettable uh, speech, uh, uh, the vast wasteland, you remember. In fact, I interviewed Newt Minow on the news hour just the other day um, on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of his speech. And he was reminding us that it was all about, he said, we created television to be broadcast television, to be in the public service. And that was what late forties, early fifties, but there it was 1961. And he felt they were getting away from it. Um, and, and, and they went on to create educational television and public television uh, as a result. And thank goodness they did. Here we are 60 years later. And I think the need for educational television, public television has never been greater than it is today. Yeah, well, you have led such a remarkable life and, and, and spent so much time in this industry. And I know it's an inspiration to me and Jill, but it's also an inspiration for all of our audience people to kind of witness you talk about that. Um, the last question that we usually ask is just your advice for young people as, a, as an experienced journalist. What would you say to young journalists who are entering the profession and some of the experience or, or some of the lessons that you would teach young people about what's needed to be um, a great journalist? I am humbled to be asked that question because I don't think of myself. I think of myself as a journalist who's constantly learning. Um, I learn something new every single day. I would say just please, if you're interested in journalism, we need you. We need, we've never needed good young journalists more than we do right now. Um, if you're curious, if you're willing to work hard, strange hours, all hours of the day and night and days of the week and um, and basically never to take your journalism hat off. You, if you're a journalist, you're a journalist all the time. You're never not a journalist once you start reporting. Um, and if you're willing to be humble, um, we don't need know-it-alls. We need people who come in wanting to know and understand what's going on in your community, in your, in your city, in your state, and the world. And that's what we need. People who, with a thirst for knowledge and information who want to gather that and share it with others. Um, and I know many young people say I have a particular passion for an issue. I think that's great. If you do, I think you want to be very clear about that. If that's the reason you're going into journalism, if you have a, a, a set of beliefs that's very strong about a, an, a set of issues, you want to be upfront about that. Um, but what, the bottom line is we need you. We need you. We need your passion. We need your your work ethic, we need your curiosity, and we need your humility. So so please jump in. We need you. This was a perfect way to end and, and such a phenomenal conversation. And, and Jill and I just want to thank you again for joining us today. Um, this, is, this is great. Thank you. It's been an honor. I love talking to both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your insights and being who you are. <laughs>